Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 today. Today's message is entitled, Saved to Serve. And if you have your bulletin, we've got some uh, fill-in-the-blank note sheets there if you want to follow along with that. If you've been with us, you know that over the last few weeks, we've seen how the persecution in the early church has gotten uh, dramatically worse with the stoning of Stephen. They took Stephen, and as he testified of who Jesus was, uh, they put him to death. And that actually pushed the church to spread. You see, they were trying to stamp out Christianity, but instead, with the killing of Stephen, it actually pushed the church out of Jerusalem so that they spread into surrounding cities and areas, and the gospel spread to new places. Last week, we read about Saul, Saul who was a Pharisee, and he had taken it upon himself to track down all these Christians who had then left Jerusalem and gone to the surrounding areas. He was going to track them down and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem and and try them in court and punish them and maybe even put them to death as well. As Saul journeyed to Damascus, we read last week where Jesus appeared to him. In Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul thought that he was fighting for God, stamping out these dirty, rotten Christians. And yet in this moment, Saul realizes that he's been fighting against God. And so Saul responded with the correct heart. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, it said, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I love that Saul here calls Jesus Lord, signifying that, okay, you're in control of my life. I'm surrendering to you. And then he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? And so Jesus tells him, go into the city go to Damascus, and wait for more direction. And as Saul rose up from the ground, he found that he was blind. He couldn't see. And so the people who were there with him, they had to lead him by hand into the city. And with that, we pick up in Acts chapter 9 and verses 10 through 22. We read about Ananias and Saul. Verse 10 says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Now, Ananias here wasn't saying, you know, Here I am, I'm over here, as if God lost him, right? But the idea is that God is speaking to Ananias, and he's so ready to respond, so ready to obey, that he says, Yes, Lord, I'm ready. I'm listening and I'm ready to respond with whatever you have for me. And I love that readiness that he has to obey. And so, verse 11, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. 
So God here is speaking to Ananias in a vision, telling him what he's supposed to go and do and pray for Saul. And he's telling him, also, by the way, I've already given Saul a vision of you coming in and praying for him. And so we see that when God is leading, he's almost always leading on both ends. And if you want to take notes, that's your first fill in the blank today. You see, oftentimes when God is leading, he's leading on both ends. He's working on Saul and on Ananias, and he's giving them each a vision, telling them what he wants to happen. Now, my wife tells a story of when she was in Bible college. While she was there, there was a, there was a young man, a student with her, that came up to her and he told her that he'd been praying and seeking the Lord and, and he believes that God has told him that she's to be his wife. And so my wife, being the godly girl that she is, she looked at him in the eye and she said, get behind me, Satan, right? <laughs> the Lord didn't say anything like that to me. She didn't say that, but she did say, what? You see, it wasn't the Lord. It was perhaps this man's own heart leading him. And he was trying to seek the Lord, but God wasn't leading on both ends in that. And I'm thankful for that. Now, many of you know that a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Erie, Pennsylvania. We were church planning. And we'd been there for 18 months uh, having a Bible study in our living room. Uh, every Sunday, and after 18 months, um, the Lord closed the door on that Bible study, on that church plant, and it was a confusing time for us. Um, we were not sure what the Lord was doing. We didn't understand why, um, but we trusted that He had a plan, and we knew that if God really wanted me to teach His Word, then He'd open up a door in His timing. So for now, I was just going to be a manager at a hardware store and love my family, and look for opportunities to serve Jesus. And so we settled down for two days uh, before Lee gave me a call. And, and Lee said, Jared, I keep praying about who the Lord wants to take over the ministry here at Open Gate. And every time I pray about it, I keep thinking about you. But I keep telling the Lord, no, Lord, you've got him planning a church in Erie, Pennsylvania. And Lee said, the Lord finally spoke to him and said, look, the church plant's between me and Jared. Between me and you, you need to pick up that phone and call him. And so the Lord was working on both ends of that equation. And so here we are, and we're so grateful for what God has done and for what he's doing. But when God is leading, he so often is working on both ends of the equation. And so if you think God's calling you to do something, calling you to step out, then I want you to be willing. I want you to be bold and be willing to fail, right? Because God's not going to tell us how it's going to end up. But he'll often be working on both ends when he's wanting to do a work. And so that's what's happening here in Acts. God is leading Ananias with this vision, and he's also leading Saul in giving him a vision, telling them what's going to happen. And so Ananias is told to go and pray for this Saul. And look at verse 13. It says, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm has been done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You see, Saul was already infamous among the Christians, even there there in Damascus. Ananias, he wasn't telling God, no, I'm not going to go pray for him, but he was saying, Are you sure you've got the right guy? Just want to double check 
before I go knock on his door. Right? But verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This is amazing to me because this is really the moment of Saul's conversion, of becoming a Christian. And yet even here in the very beginning, God's talking about how he's already got a plan and a purpose for Saul and how he's going to use him. And it's true for you and me as well. You see your next fill in the blank. God's plan and purpose is not only to save us, but to use us. Not just to save us, but to use us. You see, if God only cared about saving us, then the moment we put our faith in Jesus, it'd be, and we're raptured right up to heaven, right? And that'd be great in some ways. And yet, the reason that we're still here, the fact that we're still here, means that God's not done. Paul understood this when Paul, Saul, Paul, right? I'm going to mess that up a few times a day, just a forewarning. But Paul, writing in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 20, he says, So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. In other words, if I stay on earth for more weeks, months, or years, I know God's going to continue to use me. Yet, what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul looked towards heaven and he realized, that's, that's what I want to do. That's where I'm headed. I can't wait for that day. And yet he also understood, as long as God keeps me here, he wants to use me to encourage and exhort others to grow closer to Jesus. And so Paul said, whatever God had for him, life or death, he knew either way God was going to use it for his glory. And so let's consider this for us. We can resist God's plan and purpose in saving us by being devoted to our flesh, right? God wants to save the whole world, but we can resist the work of that Holy Spirit convicting us and drawing us to salvation by saying, Lord, I don't want to give up blank. Lord, I don't want to lose this relationship. Lord, I don't want to change this part of my life. I don't want to lose my identity, whatever it may be. And we can resist the will of God in saving us. But so too, even once we're Christians and we've confessed and trusted in Him as our Lord and Savior, we can still resist God's plan and purpose in using us because we're still too focused on the flesh. We're still too distracted with what we want. And God's plan and purpose is to use us, to work through us, to not just change our life, but then use that life for His kingdom. But we can resist it if we want to hold on to what we desire and what we want. And so may we recognize the danger of giving into the flesh and have a heart continually surrendered to Jesus because if you're still breathing, God's not done with you. And that's a comforting fact. So God told Ananias that Saul was a chosen vessel. 
that Saul was being saved to serve. So God would send Saul mainly to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, but he would also have opportunities to witness to kings and to the Jewish nation. Notice that even here, God said, and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. It was going to be a rough road. We read later in Saul's life where he says in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, he says, and, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. <clears throat> True to his word, God was faithful in continually telling Paul what was to come. I will show you what you must suffer for my name's sake. And each time it was the same. Chains and suffering. Verse 24, look at Saul's response to that. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Saul says that chains and tribulations, they don't move me. But the ministry God gave me, that's what moves me. That's what mattered to him. And so what is the ministry that God has given us? Love God, love others. That's the simple answer, right? We're all called to love God and love others. You see, when we love God, we repent from our sin and we seek after his will rather than our own will. When we love others, we love them like Jesus. Your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, your enemies, whoever. God calls us to love them as Christ loves them. And that means we point them to Christ through our words and our actions. That means we be an example of who Jesus is to them. That means we forgive them. That means we love them when they don't deserve it. This should be what moves you and me. Loving God and loving others. That's the calling is put on each and every one of us in this room and those listening online because we're a child of God if you've put your faith in Jesus. And he wants to work through you for that. So back to our text, God told Ananias to go and pray for the infamous Saul, the persecutor of the church. And verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. The most amazing thing about this passage is not that Saul's blindness is healed. It's not that Saul arose to be baptized. It's not even that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The most amazing thing to me is that Ananias comes to Saul and he calls him Brother Saul. Think about that. Brother Saul. Ananias, being a Christian in Damascus, he very likely was personally warned by other Christians who came and said, Ananias, he's coming. Saul, the persecutor of the church, he's on his way here. So hide. 
right? Don't let him find you. Get ready because he's coming. And yet the fact that Ananias calls him brother shows that he rightly considered Saul's sins to be paid in full on the cross. Isn't that amazing? And that's what we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we call each other that, we are recognizing whatever you've done wrong, whether it's against me or somebody else, Jesus has paid for it. Just like whatever I've done that's wrong, Jesus has paid for it. And so we're brethren because of what Jesus has done. We don't get to choose our brothers and sisters in Christ. God chooses and we unite together under Him and what He has done. Verse 19, So when he had received food, apparently Saul had been fasting and praying, Saul was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ." Now remember that word Christ is a title. That means Messiah, the anointed one. And so when it's saying Paul was proving that Jesus is the Christ, he's proving that he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who Israel was waiting for. Saul had been all in for persecuting Christ and now he's all in for proclaiming Christ. And it's interesting that here we see Paul winning arguments there in the church, but not necessarily winning souls. It doesn't tell us. He confounded the Jews, but he didn't necessarily convert them. It seems that the Jews here in Damascus were just as stubborn as he was, just as hard-headed and resistant to the good news as he used to be. And so now in verses 23 through 31, we read how Saul flees persecution. Look at verse 23. It says, Now after many days were passed, The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. These guys were determined. Then, verse 25, the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. This is interesting to me. You see, Saul's example teaches us that we're not to seek out suffering. Now, hear me out. I think sometimes as Christians, we can idolize the idea of suffering for Jesus. We can idolize the idea of pain because of Christ. That if somebody mistreats us for our faith, we should face it head on because Jesus called us to suffer for him. And that's true. He did. But he didn't call us to pursue suffering. Saul's life was threatened here in Damascus, and they plotted to kill him because of his witness and his testimony. And as a result, Saul didn't walk out and say, here I am, do me in, do your worst, right? But no, he fled in a basket at night like a little girl. And that was okay. You see, it's interesting to me because he said, I can still serve the Lord. It's not a sin for me to flee the persecution. And so he did. 
Your next fill in the blank. If we can alleviate our suffering without sinning, do it. Do it. But if the only way out includes breaking God's clear commands, then stay strong and let Jesus be your example and your strength in your suffering. Maybe you hate your job. Look for another. But don't mistreat your boss and ruin the example of Christ to them. Maybe you're suffering physical pain. Take an Advil, but don't wash it away with drunkenness, right? If we can alleviate the pain without sinning, then do it. No big deal. Saul's life was threatened, and it wasn't a sin for him to run away, so he did. But notice, he didn't lessen his zeal for Jesus. He wasn't running away from his devotion to Christ and the gospel, but he was running away from the persecutors, and that's all. And so, verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, when I read this, it's hard for me not to think about Saul, a.k.a. Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. Paul, who planted countless churches throughout the Roman Empire. Paul, who suffered time and time again, for the name of Jesus. But for the disciples here, all they see is Saul, the persecutor of the church. They don't have his future in their mind like we can, reading it and looking back on the past. And so, at this time, they're fearful. Because unlike Ananias, they weren't given a vision explaining Saul's conversion and his now devotion for Christ. So they were afraid, maybe this guy's faking it so that he can take us all out. Because we know that he's nuts, right? Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas was ready and willing to meet this newly converted Saul, and he was convinced Saul was genuine, so he brings him to the apostles. I love his willingness to risk for Jesus, but his willingness to also believe that Saul was genuine. And so, verse 27 continues, He declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. You see the pattern here? Again and again. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Remember that God had called Saul a chosen vessel to be sent out to the Gentiles and also to kings and to Israel. Saul had been a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish Supreme Court, one of the 70 members there. Saul would have known the chief priests personally. He would have had an easy in with all of the Jews, even the leading Jews there in Jerusalem. And surely in Saul's mind, he would think, all right, Lord, let's go get them, right? They know me. They know who I am. I know them. I know where they live. I'm their friend. Now I can share my testimony with them, and there's going to be revival. Let's do this. And yet, it was a closed door once again. Once again, the Jews didn't believe but hardened their hearts, and they said, we'll kill you too. We killed Jesus, we tried to kill Lazarus, we, tried, we killed Stephen, now we're trying to kill you. Anybody who brings up this trouble, 
And so, as Saul heads from Damascus where he was defeated, goes to Jerusalem, he's defeated once again, a closed door. And now he's sent away up to Tarsus. It's going to be around seven to ten years before Acts 13, where God says to the church there in Antioch, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the missionary journey I have planned for them. Seven to ten years. And so we think about Saul here, newly converted, on fire for Jesus, and yet he's hitting closed door after closed door, and then years of waiting. Now, don't get me wrong, he's busy still proclaiming Jesus, but the doors don't seem to be opening yet. And it reminds us that if God gives you closed doors, then keep seeking. And I might add to that, and stay obedient. If God gives you closed doors, keep seeking and stay obedient. Don't be discouraged. You see, God has a time and a place, a plan and a purpose. God was going to use Saul for great things, but it wasn't in Damascus, and it wasn't in Jerusalem, and it wasn't to the Jews. But it was later to the Gentiles. Picking up in verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. It seems that Saul was such a face and, and foundation of the persecution for the church that now that Saul is a believer himself, the persecution dwindles. It's still there, but not, not much. And so the church is growing and they're experiencing a time of peace and blessing. It's interesting to me when it talks about how the church walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see, when a non-believer, a non-Christian, somebody who's not yet put their faith in Jesus has a fear of the Lord, they understand that God hates sin, that God will not let sin go unpunished in eternity. And so that fear of the Lord is a good thing because it draws us to repentance. It draws us to putting our faith in Jesus because he's the only one that can pay for our sin. And yet, Luke, in writing this, he's not talking about unbelievers fearing the Lord, but believers, Christians. The church walked in the fear of the Lord. You see, even after we've put our faith in Jesus, we continue to have this fear of the Lord. So what does this look like? When we fear the Lord, we're not worried He will hurt us, but that we might hurt Him. When we fear the Lord, we're not worried that He will hurt us, but that we might hurt Him him now hebrews chapter 12 does talk about how god chastens us he corrects us as his children so i don't want us to think god will not correct us but god is not an evil dictator ready and waiting for us to step a toe out of line so that he can strike that's not god that's not who he is but he is a loving father who loves us so much he can't keep his eyes off of us he's always watching us and therefore, because he's a loving father, we want to please him in our, in our actions, in our words. We want to do things his way. We don't want to misrepresent him to the world, nor do we want to disappoint him. Because when we fear the Lord, we care about his approval rather than man's. When we fear the Lord, we care about his approval rather than man's. Instead of asking 
how is this going to glorify me? How is this going to make me look good? How is this going to please those around me? We're asking questions like, how will this glorify or please the Lord? Because that's who I want to please. That's who I want to magnify. When we fear the Lord, we recognize He is watching us all the time. He knows and judges our actions and our words and even our thoughts. We read in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Fearing God means that we're going to obey Him even when nobody else is listening or watching. We don't try to hide our sin or make excuses for it. Rather, because we fear the Lord, when we sin, we confess it to Him, and we constantly run back to the cross. Finally, when we fear the Lord, we recognize God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. This means that when we don't like God's way, we do it anyway. It means that His Word, rather than my heart, defines truth. These were the characteristics of the early church as they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I want to imitate that. I want to be like that. And I want to have that healthy fear of the Lord. Now we change gears a little bit. We leave Saul in Tarsus. He'll be there for a while. Now we look back to Peter. In verses 32 through 43, we read about the adventures of Peter. Verse 32, it says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. Lydda was a city in, in Judea, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. It says in verse 33, There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, which in English is unfortunate, right? For her sake, it should remain untranslated. Verse 36 continues, it says, This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Joppa was right on the coast, about ten miles away. And so, verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. 
and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Here we read about two different cities, two different miracles, and as a result, many people put their faith in Jesus. As I studied this passage, what interested me was how detailed Luke was about these different miracles and situations. He gives us their names and their locations and their problems, even their character of who they were. And it struck me because it simply reminds us that the book of Acts is history. It's full of real people with real problems and a real God. Ananias and Saul, Barnabas and Peter, they're all sinners saved by grace. You see, Acts isn't about superstar Christians. It's about our superstar God who loves us enough to save us and then use us for His glory. So if you're listening to this and you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, I encourage you to have a healthy fear of the Lord, to draw near to Him and say, Lord, I need to stop resisting what you're doing in my heart. I need to surrender my life to you. And if you're here, you're already a believer, but you've been resisting Him using you. Distracted with good things, but not godly things, then may we have a healthy fear of the Lord and say, Lord, I need to surrender to you. I need to let go of what I've been holding on to. And God, would you, by your power and your grace and your mercy, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit and empower me to be a part of your work in this broken world? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you can take broken people, wicked sinners, like Saul, like me, like each of us here. And Lord, you can take us and not only save us, wash away our sin, but then, Lord, you fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, you want to use our lives to bring glory to your name. And God, every time that we choose to obey you instead of doing what we feel like doing, Lord, you're glorified. So God, would you give us more strength to resist our flesh and to do things your way. Lord, every time we take that opportunity you give us to point people to Jesus, to pray for them, to show them your love, you're glorified. And so God, would you give us those opportunities and would you give us the boldness we need to step out and say, Jesus loves you and I love you. How can I serve you? How can I be there for you. God, we ask that you would use our earthly lives for your kingdom and for your name. And God, that when people look at us, they don't bring glory to us, but Lord, they can so clearly see, wow, look at the power of that God who can use a guy like him or use a girl like her. Lord, for anybody here who's ready to surrender to you, whether for the first time or all over again, just to lay it down and say, Lord, I want to stop doing this for me. I want to do it for you. I've tried to make my life about me and what I want and my hopes and my dreams, and it's not working. Lord, I pray right now would be the time for them in their hearts to cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, 
Would you be my Lord? I surrender to you. God, would you take my life as it is, broken? And God, would you use it for your purpose? God, we thank you for your love and for your grace. God, we worship you because you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me and worship? He is good, amen? Amen. If we can pray for you, please come forward. There's some people up front that would love to pray for you and encourage you. Otherwise, on your way out, say hi to a brother or sister in Christ and have a blessed rest of your day. Happy Mother's Day, moms.